You're listening to the Funny Women Survival Guide, the uplifting tongue-in-cheek podcast where we chat to British comedy's funniest females in an attempt to cheer up and entertain the nation in these uncertain times. And here's your host, Alexis Strum. Hello there. On today's episode, we chat to comedian and author Rosie Wilby and to journalist and author Helen Lewis about the very timely subject of cancel culture. We also chat about whether feminism is still possible whilst in lockdown. And along with funny women's Kate Stone, we pick our favourite heroines of the pandemic. And don't worry, guys, this is all really, really funny, uplifting. And to quote Helen, only medium doom and gloom. So let's say hello to our guests, shall we? Right, so we need to identify you by voices because obviously I could see you. Or perhaps you could describe yourselves or each other so that we know who we're talking to. That sounds extremely fraught. Maybe I'll describe myself. I think that's better. Go for um, it. <laughs> I, I'm Helen Lewis. Uh, I'm a staff writer for The Atlantic magazine and uh, the author of a book about feminism called Difficult Women. I meant actually describe your appearance so we know what we're dealing with here. But <laughs> I mean, no, that's I'm great. about five foot eight. I weigh too many pounds because of lockdown. Um, and I went to the hairdresser for the first time um, in four five however many months it is which I had thought like ha 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 you know I'm not one of these ladies with their vanity I'm incredibly feminist and then the sheer amount of relief at having all this huge thicket of sort of what looked like the mane of an elderly lion uh, cropped off me it was it was amazing you know how, how like how happy dogs look after they've had a haircut I now yeah. entirely entirely understand that feeling so you're a happy dog today. This, I am this is good news. Like a trimmed terrier this morning. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Looking good. And Rosie, could you describe yourself to us, please? Uh, yes. Hello. I'm Rosie Wilby, comedian, author, and podcaster, and probably more dishevelled than Helen. I have not been to the hairdressers yet, but I'm actually rather enjoying just letting it all hang out, and uh, I'm. I'm quite enjoying the lifestyle of being quite free and and not having to kind of do yourself up for for in-person meetings. I mean, not that I haven't made any effort at all for for this Zoom meeting, ladies. I mean, you know, I have had a shower and and put some clothes on. I mean, <laughs> um, but but I do quite. I've, I've in some ways, obviously, it's been a monumental mess in many ways. But in some ways, I've quite enjoyed lockdown because I've been lucky and I've had a purpose and I've been writing. So I think there have been some good elements to it, which I, I think sometimes when there's a, such a huge cloud as we have had, it's nice to find tiny silver linings where we can. I think you both look gorgeous today. Oh, and Kate's just joined us. Also fabulous. Hello, and funny women. Always got the lippy on. I like that. It's a good commitment. How are you today, Kate? I'm all right, thanks. Sorry, my uh, I've been putting off doing the updates on my computer, and today it punished oh. me. And, uh, <laughs> Sorry to hear that. Did it automatically? No, we've just we've just started, and um. I wanted to actually kick off. I was going to play a game because we've been playing games in the podcast. Uh, so I thought we'd do who are our who are our heroines of the week. Now this probably won't come out this week, but it could be heroines of the pandemic if you like. And I'd just like to know who that would be. I would like to celebrate women, creative women who are putting stuff out into the world, putting content out into the world during lockdown because I think. It's not the easiest time because we're all having to get creative with promotional structures and, and how we 
tell everyone that we've got work out and obviously for those of us who would normally do that by doing live events we're really having to think outside the box and there's a musician friend of mine called Katie Rose Bennett who her career over the years has been really disrupted by anxiety and depression and she's just released a single called One Day which the sentiment of it is is sort of is this going to go on for one day or forever? And it was written about one of her bouts of depression, but actually it's incredibly apt for how we're all feeling at the moment because we're all feeling how on earth are we going to get through this when we don't really know when the end is in sight, what's what's going to happen and, and how are our careers and lives all going to be affected when we finally do return to some kind of new normal so I've it's a really uplifting song even though it's about depression and I've been finding it a bit of an anthem for these times and I love celebrating independent artists who are sort of just doing things in their own grassrootsy DIY way which I guess I have for many years as well so I've been listening to that and celebrating that. I've got a couple actually. So my first would probably be um, Rosie Duffield, who's the Labour MP for Canterbury. She's a survivor of domestic abuse and together with a group of women from actually across the Commons, putting down really, doing really good work and putting down really good amendments on the domestic abuse bill that's going through Parliament. And they've really done their best to try and you know, get as much stuff in that legislation as possible. So talking about the so-called rough sex defence that's been used in, in, in murder trials, trying to clamp down on that, trying to stop, you know, um, victims being cross-examined in court by their abusers, all that kind of proper good politics, you know, lawmaking, heavy lifting, the stuff that I'm really into. Uh, and my other heroine of the week would be Michaela Cole, who I yeah. am so looking yeah. forward to watching um, I May Destroy You. And and what I'm, but the, she's my heroine because uh, the publicity tour that she's embarked on to do it has just been absolutely no holds barred, just talking about the, uh, the her experience of, of being a, a woman trying to create interesting, groundbreaking television. And I, I really enjoy, I, I like her moxie. I'm a big fan of that. In a yeah, way. I agree. Mm. I, I think some of the press this week about how she rejected that deal to go with BBC and have complete yeah. creative control. control. Yeah. I think that's done so much for women in our industry, you know, women writers uh, or even just actors, everyone so to, to think, wow, to be given that space, that borderless space to be able to create is amazing. And, and I wasn't aware that CAA, who obviously a huge agency out in the States, we're doing these kind of deals. They're so exploitative, you know, for, for men and women. It was quite a shock actually. And I'm, I'm be interested to see what the fallout of that will be. Um, yeah. So yeah, great people, great, great choices. Amazing. Uh, Helen. Kate, do you have a heroine of the week you wanted to discuss? Um, probably two women that have been really keeping me cheery and letting me know when it's Friday. <laughs> it's probably Fee Glover and uh, Jane Garvey with their podcast. Uh, fortunately, it's just always just funny, and I yeah. like how <laughs> both happy to say it's a bit. I did that podcast the week lockdown. before lockdown happened, actually, and Fee had turned up with a box of um, like root hair dye. She'd laid in supplies already. She'd like thought about what she was going to need to get her through lockdown. <laughs> I was, do you know what I have to say? I I totally pre-planned <laughs> for lockdown, and I feel like I'm still reaping the benefits. My super drug haul was very successful. Um, but I'm I'm very much a planner and a list maker. How did you guys all prepare? I can still I say already... I've got to stop saying guys. Sorry, you girls. How did you prepare? <laughs> Um, I, I had already planned for no deal Brexit, so I kind of moved my no deal Brexit stockpile seamlessly over to my pan <laughs> pandemic stockpile. 
I don't know. It was a really odd experience going into lockdown. I find it quite stressful because I felt a bit like Chicken Little running around saying that the, the sky was falling in, you know. Um, I, ca- I was supposed to be doing a theatre review and I, I cancelled it and I felt bad about letting them down. But, you know, all of this stuff on the way in, I just, it was, I think it happened a lot more quickly than the government certainly was was ready for. They thought they had a lot more time before the uptick was really going to take off. And so there was a kind of horrible week for me where I was going this is quite you know that the rest of the year is a write-off and 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 people still just hadn't accepted it in their hearts so for me it's been a lot easier since everybody's kind of gone oh okay this is this isn't six weeks and then we're out this isn't 12 weeks we're out this is months and months and months and you know and we don't know when it's going to end and at least we're all miserable together which is nice (laughs) true yeah true I I think obviously no none of us would want everybody to be miserable we would rather this situation wasn't as it was but friends I know who do suffer with anxiety and depression are sort of saying or some of them are saying that that has lifted to a degree because their friends have a a new kind of empathy and I have seen the potential of this situation it hasn't necessarily played out this way in a wider scale the potential to unite people and and bring communities together and in our neighborhood everyone is looking out for one another and I think on a small scale you can see examples of kindness and sort of Robin Hood philosophy and and this idea that um, actually fun, funny women's Lynn Parker spoke about in an article at the beginning of lockdown about the idea of it maybe being a leveller. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a little bit, the, the, I mean, the specific leveller point, I think, is a bit is a bit helpful when you look at the different impacts it's having on people. And I, I read a terrifying paper, sorry, it's not to be Debbie Downer, but... <laughs> the, the paper about what it looks like to go into the winter f- flu season and, you know, oh. uh, an overstretched mm-hmm. NHS is really, really tough. And I think for people who've been shielding, you know, we haven't actually heard a lot from them, but I, I think very few of them are, are relishing the prospect of going back into that level of seclusion again. But I know what you mean. I, it has been nice to meet, see more of my neighbours, feel more connected to my community. I think you have to, while acknowledging that people, some people have had a really miserable time, try and find the good and the good sides and the upsides. Right. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise, what's the point? <laughs> look, <laughs> look around, hunt around for them somewhere because. Yeah. Yeah. And you were saying you'd had a brief sort of, I don't know if it was a Twitter hiatus or, or what, Helen, but you were saying you're trying to stay off social media. I don't know if that's like a an ongoing break that you have or is that just a conscious decision? How important is that in your in your mental health? Oh, massively. Um, so I always think that Twitter becomes like a sort of, you know, last day of the school holidays, everybody's locked together, kind of, you know, with with their family, utterly sick of the sight of them. Any, like any time there is, like Christmas is always bad on Twitter. Everyone's stuck at home with their families. <laughs> you know, not yeah. enough happening. All is always really bad on Twitter. There's just not enough happening. So everybody just sort of like has a huge infight. So I thought this is, this is, this is crisis is going to make Twitter much worse. And I don't want to be a part of it. And there's a great tweet that someone did, which is every day Twitter has a main character and the goal is not to be it. Right. 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 <laughs> obviously, Most people aren't on Twitter, only something like a fifth of the UK population, but you know, it, it does feel very much like a kind of very claustrophobic Royal court, you know, from the sort of 16th mm. century. So everyone knows everyone's business and who's up and who's down. And we're all, we all, we all hate this person. Um, and I just thought at the start of it, I think I'd probably like to opt out of this, which is hard because it's also, you know, a place that if you're quite lonely, which, you know, I have been, I, we live in South London. There's not very many of our friends within walking distance. Um, you know, it's, it has, it would be lovely to like log on and have a chat, but it is important to remember that isn't what Twitter is anymore. It may have been like that in yeah. 2008, but at the moment it's like <laughs> issuing a sort of press release to, 
the people who most hate you. And you have to think about it in those terms. Do you look at the top trending when you go onto Twitter? Do you go straight to your feed or do you look at who's been cancelled today? Who's, you know... <laughs> Which politician has put their foot in it today? Where I sort you, of assume where... that everyone's been cancelled at this point, don't you think? I just, I think at some <laughs> point it would be easier to work out who hasn't been cancelled for one thing or another. Yeah, I've got a brilliant app actually called Nuzzle, which I highly recommend if you can't kick your Twitter habit, which will aggregate all the links, the top things that have been linked in the last 24 hours or eight hours by the people you follow. So it's like Twitter, you know, it's it's all the nutritious bits of Twitter, like mm, maybe I should read this article about you know the problems of liberal democracy without any of the kind of like we all hate this person who's written a trolling piece about you know people who wear masks. You might as well you know invite the Nazis to invade us again, uh, you know. And I I think that's that that's probably a healthier way to consume it, really. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, you just mentioned before we were chatting that you've uh, just written a, p- a piece yesterday for the is it for the Atlantic about counterculture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to obviously it's kind of in the news at the moment it's um, there's been a lot of uh, people for and against how do we feel as a group of ladies how do we feel about cancel culture at the moment is it is it a good thing do we want to be cancelling people and getting rid of them or are we pro freedom of speech here I don't think cancel is necessarily anti-freedom of speech I feel like a lot of the people that are being cancelled are getting to talk about it quite a lot on big (laughs) platforms yeah yeah Yeah, I think the problem with with I mean I think you're exactly right the problem about it is that no one really knows what it means are we talking about you know David Starkey saying something overtly racist and people taking away his honorary um, fellowships or are we talking about some of the stuff I write about in my article which is kind of normal people who do something small and Mm. and wrong so there's a woman for example who two years ago in America wore blackface to a Halloween party and she didn't do this in a, a, a way of mocking African-Americans. She did it in the way of it was mocking Megan Kelly, the TV anchor who earlier that day had said she couldn't see why blackface was offensive. But, okay. you know, when you when you have to explain your, your offensive Halloween costume, you, 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 you're losing. So she shouldn't have done it. She went home in tears, apologized the next day. But it was all kind of dug up by the Washington Post because it was at the party was hosted by one of their staff. Um, and I think they just feared, you know, this idea of their you know, Washington Post and blackface being put in the same sentence. So the piece they wrote ended up kind of slightly, you know, um, exonerating them as an institution. But in doing so, they wrote a massive two and a half thousand word piece about someone's ha- a private citizen. She's a gra- mm. She was a graphic designer, Halloween costume two years ago, after which she got fired. And you think, well, that's not, I mean, I think in that situation, the apology was, you know, the apology and reflection was was the atonement. That was an appropriate level of, of kickback for that. And this is so wildly disproportionate. And that's what bothers me is that, yeah, the, the problem is with cancer culture isn't the people you hear complaining that they've been cancelled. The problem is all the people mm. you never, ever hear from who don't ever get a chance to, to tell you that this, this you know, their livelihood has been taken away in the middle of a global recession. Um, and that's, yeah, that, that, that's, those are the stories that I'm kind of more interested in, in following up. Did it start in the sort of influencer world? Because I'm, I'm sure like the first time I heard the term ca- cancel culture was referring to, I think it was an Instagrammer who had, you know, pissed off another Instagrammer with a comment or something. It was all very, it was very much in that kind of um, aspirational field. Now it seems to have moved into a more political field. Where, do we know where it originated? The first Isn't time I can remember of, seeing it was, sorry. 
Oh, I was just going to say, doesn't it kind of follow on from the whole no platforming debate a few years ago? Yeah. I mean, the first time I specifically heard the word cancel use was 2014 when an activist called Suey Park got a hashtag trending that was cancel Colbert, which was Stephen Colbert's then show Comedy Central. I think she complained he'd used a Chinese stereotype. And again, like this is your point, Kate, right? He, Stephen Colbert very much not cancelled. <laughs> um, went from that show to an even bigger late night show. So you can't, it's hard to say it had a detrimental effect on his career. But yeah, I think I, I agree with you, actually, Rosie. I think it probably does come out of the idea. It, it comes to that point about what is, you know, what speech do you have to put up with being around? And and actually, is it a, is it freedom is a freedom of speech impinged only when your government restricts your speech or are there other institutions that can do that too? And I don't think I would take the absolutist view that unless you're literally being thrown in prison for stuff you say, then there can't possibly be a problem, which is some of the things that you hear, right? Because I do think, you know, as a journalist who works in writing about pretty controversial topics, it's a, I mean, that is just incredibly stressful now. And it's nowhere near as stressful as what's happening to people in, say, Poland, uh, for example, now, or, you know, the Philippines or Malaysia or anything like that, or even America, actually. But there is a, a, a sense that net, writing about difficult top topics is harder now than it was 10 years ago. And part of that is just about the fact the media has shrunk. You know, jobs feel much, much less secure. You know, you, you have to have, if you want to write about really to- difficult topics, you have to have an institution behind you that backs you. And very fewer and fewer people are confident that they have that anymore. So how's it affected, have you felt an impact on your career, you know, especially over the pandemic? Have you, have you had a level of anxiety about, um, I suppose, really where the work's coming in as well, actually? That's a big worry for all of us. But have you noticed a shift at all? Well, the, the media has been really hard hit for the, by the pandemic. So advertising has obviously fallen off a, a cliff. I mean, that was accelerating a trend that was already happening. And lots of you know, places tried to diversify into live events. They thought they were, this was brilliant. This was a brilliant revenue stream. And oh, no, no, turns out not wasn't at all. So yeah, the Atlantic cut um, quite a few jobs a while ago. My husband works for The Guardian. They've just announced big job cuts. So, you know, I don't think anybody in journalism feels that this is boom times for for journalism and they've got a, you know, great and career and they should probably start thinking about buying another property. It's it's pretty grim out there. And I think it's for people in their 20s, it's it, it, it's even more grim because they don't, they haven't ever had any of the, the boom years, right? Um, they're stuck in jobs that are often you know, permalancers, this idea that you're just on freelance contracts forever. Um, and and I think, I mean, I wrote a piece about Harry Potter the other week. And one of the things I thought it was really important to try and get older people to understand was the idea that actually you sort of say, oh, young people are so infantilized, or they're always complaining about this and that, or, you know, they, they don't want to settle down. They're always complaining about the avocado toast. And well, they can't, you know, <laughs> they can't buy houses. You know, the average yeah. London house price is... Um, it's £500,000 and people want a 20% deposit on that. And you can say, okay, we'll move outside London. But okay, but then, the, you know, in London, there's a housing crisis. Elsewhere else, there's a job crisis. Mm. So you, you might be able to buy a house much cheaper, but can you get a job that supports that that house mm. buying purchase outside London? So it's a really tough picture out there for, for, for millennials younger than me, I think. So I'm not surprised that a lot of it manifests in the anxieties, like about things about kind of cancel culture. There is a kind of deep resentment of, older people who seem to have very secure stable lives do you find it difficult as well being a journalist being exposed to I mean these are all quite dark subjects as you said you don't want to be Debbie Downer or whatever but you know this there's been a lot that's come out of the pandemic that we obviously have to um, rise to the occasion and discuss do you feel that there's a responsibility on your shoulders as a journalist because you're party to a lot more than you know we 
we can opt out. I don't have to read a newspaper, but you have to stay current. Do you feel that burden? Yeah, those days are definitely when I would like to not read the news. And the subjects that I cover can often be quite grim. So I'm, I'm working on a piece at the moment about um, internet-based extremism, right, and how that leads to terrorism. So that's quite cheery. And then I'm also working on a piece about um, domestic violence, which has spiked during lockdown. And, and and the fascinating thing is people kind of say that they want good news stories, but they don't read them. <laughs> the great kind of sadness about being able to see live metrics on any news website is that you can see exactly what it is that people want to read. Um, and I think that, again, that's been quite distorting for journalism because you actually can risk just giving people more and more and more of the things they've already told you that they want. Yeah. Um, and that's quite difficult because in the short term, obviously, it works brilliantly for ginning your numbers, but you, you have to think of your long-term strategy. Um, and so I try not to chase the the tale of stuff that's just happening in the news. Try and think what what are the things that actually no one's talking about. Um, but that's you know that's I, I'm I'm very lucky to have the space that I have to do that. That's not an option for quite a lot of people. You know, the, you, you, we wonder why all these articles get written about basically arguments between sort of the same seventeen people. Well, <laughs> they're quite cheap to do, and and people people will read them. That is the problem. I blame people, you know, that I, great I, line I, from Pete Show. They blame the people, yeah. They, they yes. vote for the Nazis, they buy Coldplay records, you can't trust people. <laughs> no. And Rosie, you, um, so we were trying to figure out what the degree of Kevin Bacon was with you two, because Rosie, you, you think that you perhaps have had some, I you think, wrote an article uh, for? When I was doing my show, comedy show, Is Monogamy Dead, which eventually became a book, um, I wrote an article for the New Statesman about uh, the idea of sort of emotional monogamy and what what does monogamy mean? And because I'd done a survey asking about cheating in relationships and those kind of boundaries of and how fluid they are and how for many many people in relationships their boundaries are not the assumed ones that it's just about having sex with another person for some people emotional fidelity is is perhaps more important than what somebody does physically so I wrote an article about that and I'm pretty sure that Helen was then at New Statesman this was about 2014 and I, I think you commissioned that that piece which got lots of shares and comments online because um, lots of people want to talk about monogamy and have a, an opinion about that and I've right. enjoyed doing my talk about the book around around and about lots of different places, getting lots of different responses. Um, I think in Aberdeen, people had not heard of polyamory. <laughs> <laughs> Did they think it was a the material then? <laughs> I mean, they, they, I think they were all up for it after, after the talk. <laughs> the, last, I mean, the last couple of months presumably have been terrible for the polygamous. Oh, God, anyone who's in multiple relationships, I mean, yeah, you can't see all your partners. And, and I mean, people who are unethically in multiple relationships as well people who are having affairs you know they're stuck with their actual partner um I think I listened to the episode you did with Shazia at the beginning of the series Alexis and I think uh, Shazia right. was talking about that as well wasn't she yeah that's that is, I was it was ringing bells what you just said actually yes we were talking about um people that are having an affair and there was a story <laughs> in the news about it and yeah there's a big there's a big um pressure to check to choose a partner at the moment i think as well oh, you know yes. say and perhaps I know lots, cut your bubble well i suppose you could now you can have a larger bubble um but it, i suppose it depends if everyone in your bubble is all mm. seeing each other because sometimes the structure of it is quite complex but i do know lots of people who moved in prematurely with new partners and 
then mm. broke up rather dramatically. I did an interview with a woman in Berlin who got into a, a polyamorous situation with a guy she moved in with who had a, two platonic gay boyfriends who lived with them as well. So it was suddenly quite an intense, it was very Berlin, <laughs> but quite an intense situation to to suddenly plunge herself into and it, it didn't last all that long. But they, they remained friends. It was all quite amicable and all quite cool and hip and Berlin-y. So do you keep in touch with all the people that you wrote about? And and I suppose the other question I have is, are you intending to update the book with the development of the pandemic and the impact it's had on relationships? Because well, that would be a great read. Yeah, well, the book that I've been writing is, is in some ways a bit of a follow-up to Is Monogamy Dead? Because it's the Breakup Monologues, which goes with my podcast, also called The Breakup Monologues, which is... I suppose the the end of a sort of trilogy I was doing of shows all about love and relationships and so ending with with breakup stories and how we recover from breakups and in the end the book is a lot about what we learn from breakups and how that equips us to be better in relationships because I'm now in a relationship that I, I've been in for three and a half years that I really want to stay in long term and I've not managed that incredibly well over the years as a serial monogamist and I've kind of jumped from one relationship to the next sometimes I've been pushed <laughs> and sometimes I've jumped more more voluntarily but I wanted to look at how I've learned from those past relationships some of the mistakes I've made and stupid things I've done and poor decisions I've made and and how I've actually learned and how I can incorporate that into a really healthy and good relationship where we communicate on a way better level than I, I think I have before and we are in a monogamous relationship but I think I learned a lot from my friends who were polyamorous because they were of course having to communicate on a fairly deep and intimate level and talk very honestly about consent and boundaries and all of these kind of things so I think you can incorporate those values into monogamy and maybe do do that better but it's it's been good in lockdown she's she's not been at work for for some of the time because of course well everybody was at home for a couple of months and we have our little family set up with our dog and cat and to be honest it was quite nice for a while we were just working in different spaces in the house um but the the thing about two women living together is of course that your cycles do sync up so you are both comfy <laughs> at the same time which is definitely something to look out for and and would you be updating the book, do you think? Will you go back to it? I would say the breakup monologues, I guess, kind of follows on from it and it does kind of recap on my story and some of the other. So people who have read the first book, they might recognise some of the people that come up again. So to some extent, it does do that. And there is a chapter, at, well, the epilogue at the end does sort of talk a little bit about this era we're living in now of, sort of corona divorces if you like where people have been spending time together and suddenly realize they don't like each other <laughs> that much because divorce lawyers always say their busiest times are new year and september just after the summer holidays when when couples have been spending time together and, and they realize that um <laughs> you know maybe they don't like that person or they don't like spending all their time with them maybe that's not natural maybe you know, we are supposed to have a certain amount of space and our own interests and passions and other friends built into, you know, even a monogamous relationship. We go off and do other things and see other friends normally. It is quite an abnormal situation to be cooped up together. But I keep reminding myself that it's not as bad as uh, last summer 
instead of um, going to Edinburgh, I decided I was going to focus on writing a book proposal. And I, I was a bit jaded about Edinburgh Fringe because it, <laughs> well, it can get like that. And we went on a, a boating holiday and we were cooped up together, both premenstrual in this very cramped, musty uh, little boat that was like being a sort of strange 1970s caravan um, and you know you had to kind of shower on the toilet with a handheld little dribbly shower thing right. and a, a, a tray underneath your feet would fill up with water very very quickly but you had to leave enough hot water to be able to do the washing up after dinner uh, so it was it was very very primitive and <laughs> It was like camping at the worst festival. It, and we were both quite tense. And the dog was not happy as well. She kept crying whenever we went into a lock. And we didn't know what we were doing with all the gates and keys. And we, yeah. So anyway. You've just blown it, my uh, whole romantic image of, um, you know, a nice boating holiday. I know. It's supposed to be all we relaxing. We can't do much else, time. can we, at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> and um, Helen, you've got a book out at the moment, The Difficult Women History of Feminism in 11 Fights. And that came out just prior to lockdown. So I'm guessing you managed to get all the promotion in. Yeah, what incredible timing to bring out a book yeah. about three weeks before all bookshops close, all literary festivals get cancelled. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I was, I did a lot, I was a lot luckier than lots of other people because actually I'd gone through the reviews and I'd done the first week of publicity. But yeah, my my plans for my summer were going to be, you know, I'm going to sort of waltz around the country, going to lovely English villages that have got nice literary mm. festivals. And and wouldn't it have been really lovely weather to do that as well? Gosh, yeah. Um, <sighs> All, but uh, you know, but but the paperback comes out next year, and I, I'm sure I won't escape doing lots of that. But I think it's yeah, I think it's been really strange to talk to people about the book because actually, there's a chapter on it about time, um, and I think that chapter has really resonated with people in a way even more than it would have done normally because particularly for parents, particularly mothers with young kids the early couple of weeks of lockdown where you weren't even allowed to see grandparents or other family members were really hard because you'd had nursery or school taken away and all your support structures taken away, but you were still by and large, lots of people expected to do your job at the same time. And it was an extreme version of reminding lots of people how uncaring we are about the, how difficult it is to juggle work and, and an unpaid caring labor. You know, you really had it rubbed in your face that you were essentially trying to do two full-time jobs at, at the same time one only one of which you were getting paid for yeah I was going to say actually there was an article this week about um this research by the University of Oxford about how women have come off so badly in this pandemic you know that the kind of industries that women work in with beauty and um, retail being heavily impacted and a lot of the decisions obviously have been made by men um so it will be interesting to see what the future is going to look like for women coming out of this as you said you know childcare has been a really huge issue I'm a single parent and it's meant I've not been able to work I just wanted to sort of get your view really on how I suppose how lockdown's impacted feminism you know is it is it still possible to be a feminist in lockdown well one of the things that feminism runs on is kind of anger and frustration right you have to mm. if you want to run any kind of social movement you have to get people to fundamentally agree that there's something wrong that you want to change you know people can't just be mildly irritated but they've got lots of other <laughs> things on they have to feel a kind of burning <laughs> sense of of injustice and I think that's what I mean, I mean single parents particularly really really screwed over by this whole situation yeah. And, and as you say, one of the massive problems is not just the perception that the government's very blokey, but the, the actual fact of it. And I don't mm. think that's um, 
you know, I don't think that's a, an accident. There's a piece in the Times this week saying of that I think it was of the 92 briefings that the government had, those daily press briefings, only three of them were led by women. You know, the cabinet committees that are taking all of the decisions, the little mini quads, are so heavily male dominated. Munira Mirza is the only woman really in a, in a very senior policy role at number 10. Therese Coffey, who's the you, you wouldn't know this, but she is the Department of Work and Pensions Minister, you know, incredibly important. So many people going, massive mm. spike, more than a million people spiked onto universal credit, um, you know, and, and that's going to just increase through the autumn as the lag and the furlough scheme ends. So she's got this incredibly crucial job in government and she might as well have been on a witness protection programme. Yeah, seen hide nor hair of her. And, and I think yeah. that's, you know, it, it, I, and I don't think it's, it is partly about the kind of blokey a blokey environment and it's partly about an incredible centralization of power into the hands of literally just like a, a handful of, of trusted people and the way that that downing street is being run like that but the downside of it is even rishi sunak who bizarrely loads of people seem to i mean not least my mother seem to think is is really rather rather <laughs> rather rather fruity and, uh, and exciting she <laughs> yeah. said oh it's such he always his clothes look so lovely and so tailored and i was like well you know if my father-in-law was a billionaire. I'd probably splash out on a suit or two, mum. But yeah, but you know, but but the fact that the childcare has been such an afterthought is a, is a real example of that. Or as you say, the fact that we got barbers for men reopening before beauty salons. Sort exactly. of, you do think they do, and I hate you know having been this woman in the past. You do think they do sort of need a woman in the corner to go hello. could I remind you that there are some some certain differences in the way that you know women's bodies work and the way that women's lives tend to work that you probably haven't you don't seem to if you don't mind me I don't mind me awfully just just butting (laughs) it just a little bit and saying actually how am I you know how are you supposed to go back to work when you you know your three-year-old can't be left at home all day it's all very well saying oh we we hope employers will be um reasonable like this well, that's like saying, you know, we don't need a police force because we hope everyone could just agree not to murder people. No, <laughs> sorry, you need, you need laws. You need laws. We need employment laws to stop stop bad things happening. Um, and, and that's been really miserable to watch that. But there have been some bright spots too. So the, um, the, the COVID tracking app, now really does log a whole load of information about not just um, whether sex disaggregating the data, which is really important because it seems more men have been dying, um, but also things about look, looking at menstrual cycle and looking at hormones yes, and stuff I like that. that. And it's like, why wouldn't you collect this incredibly useful amount of information? We already have so much better information than other countries about the f- disproportionate effect of COVID-19 on black and minority ethnic people. And actually, we can help more people. Like, this is not some sort of mad feminist ideology obsessed point. It's like, if we have better data, it's better for everyone. It's better for men as well as women. Mm, um, so there, yeah. are some, there are some bright spots. I think often that just gets so easily dismissed as box ticking or something as well. And it's you know, the more diverse the room is, the more you have these people saying, well, in my life or in my family's life, this is a huge thing. And then, of course, if it is for them, it probably is for mm. lots of people. Yeah, I talked to a Conservative MP who said, look, I'm very aware of the fact that I've got a, you know, I've got a garden and not everybody's got a, a garden. And there were some times in the early days when some of the London parks were, were, were trying to close. And you were like, well, you know, if you live in Hackney in a tower block or in a, even in a, you know, three, uh, you know, a flat that's been, carved out of a bigger house that green space is incredibly important to you mm. um and and i think that's a, that is your point exactly if you don't have people just assume that every why, why wouldn't you that everybody lives kind of like you live you're like a normal that's average right, yeah 
And it's really important to have those different voices in the room to kind of go, do you know that some people don't have gardens? <laughs> do you know that some people That's have uteruses? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. and some That's why everyone suddenly dashed to get a dog, yeah. isn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone suddenly dashed to get a dog so they could go out to the park. Yeah, it's it's very worrying. I mean, I think... I think um, it's going to be interesting to see how it impacts the job market as well. I've been reading some really mm. disturbing tweets and, and um, articles this week about women applying for jobs who are being told very explicitly, I'm afraid you've got a child, so we're going to go with someone single. And it'd be interesting to see how that changes, even, even women who are in relationships and have the support of the partner, because employers know at the moment and we're getting into the summer holiday period it's it's really the, the childcare is largely resting on the mother I don't care what anyone says you know in this environment I have a few people I know of where the dad is able to work from home and help out a bit but largely we've gone into back into the sort of this 1950s um stereotype for mothers which is going to be very difficult to climb back out of at the end of this you know. Well, there's very obvious reasons why that happens too. Um, so women are much more likely to be in heterosexual couples. They're much more likely to be the lower earner of the two. And they're much more likely um, to be in part-time work. So mm. actually, if you're a couple at an individual level looking at thinking, okay, one of our jobs might end up not making it through this. Who's do we preserve? You know, Who do we throw everything at and try and keep them? It makes much more sense for it to be the man's job. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, you can understand why all these little individual decisions add up to, as you say, a really bleak picture and sort of 1950s style breadwinner homemaker divides coming mm. back. And I think as well, obviously, um, you know, we, we work in comedy and that's why we're here today. So the comedy industry has been <laughs> Yay. largely, ha, ha, ha. Um, the, the, the comedy, and, and actually I have to say, Helen, I really enjoyed, you were on the uh, the Funny Women event a couple of weeks back. Um, have we got women for you? I think, is that yeah. the right title? Yeah. Have we, well, yeah, Yay. exactly. And I thought it was brilliant. It was so refreshing to see a group of women all get together and it was I really was howling with laughter and I haven't had that experience with any online comedy events actually. And I, I was, I was just really in the moment. I think it's difficult to do online comedy, but well done. You were hilarious. I loved it. Um, but I just wanted to find out how, you know, especially for Rosie as well, like this is your part of your income. How have you found, has it been harder on you as a woman at the moment, not having as many gigs? Do you, do, have you noticed, uh, is there an impact um, on a gender work in a gender specific way or is it just hard for everyone right now? Well, I think it's hard for every comedian right now because that is what has made us who we are. It's not only an income, it's, mm. phew, it's vital for your kind of well-being and mental health and just it's, it's amazing how important it is to have that connection with an audience it's about communication it's not just something about ego and, and showing off for me particularly mm. the when I do quite thoughtful sensitive shows it's about being heard and being understood and it's about because I talk openly about being LGBT and it's about connecting with those audiences and seeing them reflect that that sort of recognition and and empathy as well and talking about some of the things that are particular for our community and it's yeah it is a really strange thing because I think so many comedians are a strange mix of introvert and extrovert and for some of us 
the sort of putting content out all the time on your Instagram and online isn't as natural as getting on a stage and and talking to people and Mm. seeing their faces and connecting and communicating. There's something a bit less connected about just putting content out there. And so I, I have kind of struggled with that a little bit. I mean, I, because I was busy writing a book and I was also, I was lucky financially, I guess, because I had a book advance and I had some podcast funding for a, a double bill about um, a kind of a slightly sciencey double bill of the breakup monologues about anti-love drugs and love drugs and how in the future we might be able to take a pill to forget our ex, a bit like eternal sunshine for the spotless mind. You know, maybe it could come true in real life. So I had little things that I felt I could focus on and had to do anyway but I think it is it is hard to figure out how to put yourself out there in a way that is very different from what we've become used to and and come to rely on in terms of how we connect and how we find our place in the world I think if you're suddenly not doing something and that job and future is threatened because of course we've had this whole save life comedy campaign just recently because all the arts funding is going to opera and theatre and you know these forms of art that are seen as as proper art and not you know comedy is supposedly financially sustainable because you know it's just a person talking into a microphone it's cheap to put on but actually lots of brilliant brilliant small venues those little fringy theatres above a pub you know, uh, one of my favourites that first put me on was the Etc. Theatre in Camden, you know, places like that that are sort of, you know, 50 to 100 seats, uh, you know, they're, they're going to really struggle to continue. Um, and how are these places going to get support and get funding? Because, you know, the comedians you see on the telly, they all started at these places and were able to experiment and and play around with ideas. So it's kind of really erases you in a way because that whole element of what you do and that whole future of it potentially is is taken away in some way it's it does something quite peculiar to your sense of self I think I think it's interesting as well what you're saying um it's making me think about this there's a a whole campaign on Twitter today about you know artists um, in, a, in our industry and being on a zero income because they've fallen through the the net they don't qualify for furlough or any of the schemes and and that I think is as um, it does devalue the profession in some way because it feels like a lot of people have been left as you say you, you were in a fortunate situation um, but a lot of people have been left kind of adrift really and and what's the incentive to go back into it and I imagine actually for women specifically mothers as well what would be Mm, what would be your incentive to go back into comedy yeah I think it's it's unfortunately going to be one of those situations where it's people who have a certain amount of privilege who will be able to will have access to doing a a career like comedy Um, I mean to some extent we see that anyway with the Edinburgh Fringe and it's so expensive to go there there are tons of people who are excluded from that which I think is a shame because it's supposed to be this open access festival but it's become not that but I think comedy as a whole is perhaps going to become more available to the privileged few and I hope not because we've had this big increase in diversity thanks to organizations like funny women you know we see 
way more women. We see women from working class backgrounds. We see this racial diversity. We see people talking about be, being queer and trans and gay and non-binary. We, we see all kinds of different voices. But I think we could see that shrink. We could see that diversity shrink. It could go back to this terrible white man talking about wanking. <laughs> <laughs> I think the... Um... They published the results of that survey, didn't they? The the live comedy and it the, the demographic of people that were going to struggle the most was it was a bit troubling, really. I think yeah. it's difficult to know what we can do as a community um, to support others. But I think um, I think the online culture with comedy at the moment is definitely I, I think it's doing well, and I think that there are models that are being set up. I know Jason Manford's yeah. comedy club's doing really well. He's getting lots of um lots of visitors and links and stuff but you've got to be quite tech savvy I was going to ask you Helen you know you said about the the literary festivals has there been an equivalent are there online versions of some of these large literary festivals taking place yeah they they did a digital version of the hay festival um and I've done loads and loads of zoom events but I mean it's like Rosie was saying it's it is exactly the same problem and I and I write a lot about theatre which has had a lot of these problems too the the experience that people are paying for is not just the performance it's the the night out it's the being in a room with other people it's having a communal experience right like it's I mean you'll know this better than I do but it is always funnier to watch comedy in a club than it is to watch a dvd at home because mm. you know and it's you're you're feeding off the energy of of everyone else and I think I did have I got news for you the first one of the series and it was it was tough I mean it was it's a long recording anyway but it's tough to do a joke and it just not (laughs) no one fundamentally no one laughs I mean I'm I'm used to that obviously but but um but you know podcast formats are kind of different and actually the news quiz felt much more like this much more we we just retooled it into a into a kind of podcast discussion but it's there's a particular energy you get and 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 it also just makes everybody feel more kind of alive I guess if you're doing stuff and you 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 can see that in real time the reaction you're getting that's really important and yeah, so so book festivals kind of aren't the same because people also want to be in the room with you know we want to be in the room with yeah. Margaret Atwood and go oh it's it's real life Margaret Atwood, <laughs> um, which isn't kind of the same over Zoom. And I think yeah, I, you know I've got lots of friends who work in theatre and I think that's been really sad too because there's a kind of electricity about it that you know I didn't realise quite how much because I go see so much bad theatre because I've been a theatre reviewer I've forgotten how much the bits of it that are really really good are you know are just a unique experience. Yeah, it was kind of, I watched some of the National Theatre um, productions on YouTube. It was a little bit depressing, I've got to be honest with you. And the fact that you can just pause it in heightened moments, it <laughs> doesn't really work. Um, well, it's written It's written to go straight through, which I think is what's really fascinating about it, right? So if you write a film, you know that essentially you can, there's all kinds of stuff you can do in the first half hour, because who leaves a film in the first half hour? It's got to be really, really bad. Um and the same thing is true of plays, right? That they are written for an audience who are literally, you know, stuck there. In in, in plays, even more, it's like a massive. You have to to walk out in the first ten minutes of a play, so you have to just make a big deal about how you were it's never been so offended in all your life. Um, but but TV is completely different. TV is written to com- now. TV is written to compete with the idea you might also be checking your phone. Um, and I think that's the problem with trying to watch those theatre productions at home is they're not they're not written. They're not staged to be something that you can have sort of 75 percent of your attention on while also kind of thinking about whether or not you want to put the kettle on or go to the loo or what's going what's that weird noise happening outside or whatever it might be they they demand a level of attention to you can't really give to them in a home environment 
No, that's very true, and I think I think in some ways the um, future of theatre is is more is more bleak than uh, the future of comedy because mm-hmm. there are ways around the comedy thing. You know, there's been these drive through or drive in or however you pronounce. It. I don't know. Drive, <laughs> drive by <laughs> shooting <laughs> comedy. <laughs> we might come to that. <laughs> probably will. That's the one line. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they've they've been they've been pretty successful and actually people are kind of getting on board. I saw there was a lovely clip of some, like all the cars hooting along to a joke and, you know, there's ways round it. Theatre. Yes. We've got the option, I suppose, of open air, but if you just take a look out the window, um, that's way too risky. If you're thinking of insuring your actors against Mm. COVID as well as, as (laughs) with the the weather issues. Um, so what do you think in an ideal world, how will, how will the arts come out of this pandemic? What do you, how do you see the arts faring? I mean, what I would like to do is to see some slightly new models coming up. So one of the reasons that the theatre has been a lot better off in Europe for two reasons. One, the level of subsidy is just simply much, much higher. Um, and also that they have year-round ensembles. So you have a company of sort of 20 actors or something like that, and they're expected to act in, you know, six different productions across the year. And, you know, that doesn't work. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want that kind of dictated by fiat, but so much of the British theatre industry is about, um, you know, freelancers. It's such casual, insecure employment. And that's why, you know, and even you can say that even about the very kind of top actors, right? You you don't know where your next Mm. gig is coming from. Um, And I think that's something to kind of look at, whether or not it's time to look at the the funding model. Um, Because, you know, exactly as Rosie was saying, the people who get driven out first are the people at the bottom, the people who are really scratching along. And, and again, just as I don't want to return to what I think of, you say, white men making jokes about wanking, or as I call it, the 90s. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't yeah, want enough. to return to a, a you know a theatre industry that is essentially, as you say, white middle class Oxbridge graduates, you know, who who, who mm-hmm. live with their parents, being the, the universal view of the world. Um, that I'm really worried that that the process of hearing from different t- sorts of voices is going to go into reverse. Because there will be so much little, so much less money. Um, people will be much more risk averse. Um, one of my friends said to me, "I hope you like waiting for Godot," and I thought that's it, isn't it? Like, it's, <laughs> it's all it's all going to be monologues until you know, and, and I know, two handers at most until the end of time. But yeah. wasn't there a performance with? I don't know if it was Matt Smith or it was a couple of actors this week Lungs, where they yeah. do, yeah, lungs. That was it. A socially yeah. distant performance. Yeah, so that's a two-hander by Duncan McMillan called Lungs that was at the old Vic with Matt Smith and Claire Foy from The Crown as a couple trying to decide whether or not to have a baby. And, yeah, they just decided to do it socially distanced and sold a, a limited number of tickets so that you could watch it online and attempt to recreate and, and p- then performed it live, right? Mm. So you get some of that that back. The Donmar are doing a very interesting thing where they're going to do a, a sound installation, basically. Um, Simon Stevens has written an adaptation of a novel about what would happen, I think, what would happen if everyone in the world went blind at the same time, voiced by Juliet Stevenson using binaural headphones. I don't know if you've ever wow. had this weird experience wow. before. So, you, so, um, 
Simon McBurney, who's a brilliant theatre maker, did an incredible show called The Encounter with these headphones that, that you can, you can, you hear, it's like things are happening at different positions in space around you, right? The sound is separated out so that it feels like you can feel like someone's suddenly behind you shouting something and you kind of look around. They're really, and those are really interesting because that show was one of the weirdest things I've ever watched. It's all quite hallucinatory anyway. Um, but, but those kind of new technologies, using sound, for example, as a substitute for live performance, that's quite exciting and interesting and you can Especially imagine it's Juliet Stevenson's voice that's brilliant <laughs> who's a great actor yeah exactly and you can imagine it working for kind of horror things you know being alone in an empty yeah. theater building with some headphones Ooh. on is kind of quite <laughs> spooky right so <laughs> I think it will prompt some interesting bits of creativity and that's the bit that gives me hope is that actually a new generation will have to these will be the tools that they'll kind of grow up with they'll you know there's always anytime you put restrictions on something yeah forces potential people for innovation yeah to innovate because they have to try and adapt to a new set of rules and I think that will probably be the same for, for comedy too you I, I mean already I've seen so many brilliant voiceover TikToks you know those oh, yeah. kind of <laughs> those short clips which I think have been you know because you can make them at home and and and, and I don't know if that would have necessarily happened or, got, or become so popular without lockdown so it's not all doom and gloom that's my important takeaway always love it it's only medium doom and gloom (laughs) (laughs) it's like the the gloom forecast okay so rosie future future of um the arts oh gosh well like helen says i i i think that there will be new innovations and i think we will see new forms and formats and it could be really really exciting times but I hope that we do retain some kind of diversity but also um, harking back to the episode I listened to I caught up this morning with your chat with Shazia uh, and she was saying how women are so much better at survival and I have been um, reading kind of lots of great work by by women recently that kind of showcases our resilience Been reading and reviewing a great memoir by a woman called Terry White called Coming Undone um, oh, yeah. last week which it may be a, a harrowing read for some people if they um, have experiences of childhood abuse but it's one of the most exquisite pieces of writing so I, I just think women are putting brilliant work out into the world and I think that there is a lot of just superb talent out there and I think we will find ways to get our voices heard and get our work out there but it's kind of been a case of rethinking things just recently hasn't it and Kate in terms of live comedy any predictions from you for for how things are moving I know funny women have moved to doing online events the awards largely I would I would imagine not much will change between now and September and that that will be still an online event as well uh I think it's just going to be that live comedy is going to have to develop some side hustles it's always going to be like a <laughs> millennial of the arts and it can't just be live wow. comedy anymore it's going to have to be podcasts zoom gigs and so on but hopefully that will be something that will make live comedy a more accessible genre so if you are housebound or disabled or something it won't be I can't go to this venue therefore I can't see this show so I don't know it might end up being positive I'm hoping also that this will be a big push for recognizing comedy as an art form 
Yes, as the reruns run out and people suddenly realise, oh, hang on a minute, <laughs> we do need comedy in our lives. Um, yeah, I think that's great. And I think as well, it's a leveller for people entering the industry, I would imagine. I don't know how that would work in journalism. It'd be interesting to see the people who are currently training or studying or trying to get into the industry. I don't know how it will affect them. Um, certainly, for new comedians, yes, it makes it a lot easier because I could literally set up my set myself up as a comedian today and start putting out material. I don't have to go through the, you know, uh, <laughs> climb the climb the rungs of the ladder and the comedy circuit and do all the awful gigs. Um, <laughs> for journalism, yeah, what's the future for that going to look like? Do you think? That's a bleak question. Well, I think it's a mixed bag, really, because that tendency that you're talking about has already slightly happened. I mean, Twitter really did that to journalism. You had a generation of journalists who got quite big through self-promoting and became kind of brands basically and and that has good sides and bad sides it did to some extent diversify the voices that we heard from but the problem was that it made everybody believe that sort of opinion writing was the highest form of journalism and actually opinion writing is you know I love it I read loads of opinion columns but it's kind of cheap right it's having an opinion on some reported facts and um and actually the problem the crisis in journalism is about who are the people actually going and looking at stuff you know like who are the people actually going into china and looking at uyghurs in essentially kind of concentration camps that stuff is hard and expensive mm. um whereas sitting down at my desk and having 800 words of thoughts about it is is, is much cheaper so i I'm, I'm worried that that tendency will only be exaggerated by all the cuts that are happening you know, already it's very hard to get things covered in like, you know, county courts, magistrates courts, you know, just that sort of bread and butter of what local journalism was. Um, and the BBC has been funding some local democracy reporters, but again, is having to make huge cuts itself. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I don't see it as a an unalloyed good that actually the, the entry level has kind of gone away in a sense. Yes, you know, training courses and things like that were quite expensive, but they also did keep give people a kind of grounding in the tools that they would need for a journalistic career. So, you know, I think we let a lot of people in to be very low paid bloggers, essentially, and opinion writers and aggregators. Yeah. Did we give them the opportunities to step up to the next job and the next job and make a career out of it? I, I think that's the bit that I'm, I, makes me less optimistic about about the industry. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought of it as bloggers to journalists before. But yeah, I imagine that's happening more and more. Yeah, I and think that, that must... I mean, people get hired to write, you know, for, for sites like, you know, Vice, because they've got a really kind of great spunky Twitter presence. Mm -hmm. And and that's that is one style of journalism. But what, what you're missing now is the, you know, when I started, I worked at the Daily Mail for the first several years of my career as a sub editor. And there was lots of people there who had left school at 16 and gone to work for their local paper and spent the first 10 years of their career, you know, doing stuff in the local paper about kind of local council meetings and lost dogs and whatever it might be. And all of that stuff's kind of gone. And journalism is professionalized. Like the majority of people in journalism maybe have a degree and actually might even also have a postgraduate degree. And that in itself is not, you know, has, has changed the complexion about who actually is in journalism. I think it's made it much harder for people from low-income working-class backgrounds to get into it than it was actually, you know, despite the restrictions that the print unions and people had um, 40 years ago. Yeah, that's a worry. I think um, that would be interesting to see how the diverse, diversity is impacted as well post-pandemic with people going into entry-level jobs in journalism. I mean, do you, do you ever mentor people? Is that something that you think 
that might increase is like mentoring and and kind kind of apprenticeships yeah um i I've, I've mentored a couple of people through women in journalism an organization i used to be deputy chair of but i sort of think sometimes that the best thing i ever did in journalism was i got funding from the welcome foundation which is a big well-endowed science foundation for um fellowships so we started off with two weeks and actually we ended up with eight week fellowships for black and minority journalists who wanted to write about science so it was funded by a science foundation and they were specifically science journalists because the other thing that I think happens about these shallow conversations we have about diversity is that you end up with people who have got a you know non-traditional background or identity are forced to kind of talk about that and make it their beat. Mm. And I see it happen all the time with with women, you know, that, that, that almost everybody I know who writes regularly about feminism worries that in some way it kind of ghettoizes them, that it puts them in a box. They get seen as only that, right? Whereas no mm. one does that to the kind of defense correspondent who's also mad keen on football. Yeah. Like, <laughs> men are assumed to be able to kind of be interested in several things at once. And I think that's a, I think that's a shame. I think it's really hard if you're a particularly a racial minority in a newsroom that people sort of expect that you want to write about that experience you might actually just want to write about clothes or science or yeah. economics or defense or you know mm-hmm. bird watching or whatever it might be <laughs> and 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 I think that's that's another temptation that we kind of have to resist when we, we're looking at those those issues awesome and I think in general mentorship is is I'm a big fan of of trying to you know trying to help other people especially as you say the, the, the disenfranchised youth at the moment who are basically fucked I mean I do feel very sorry for them as much as we discovered we don't like people very much I do feel sorry for the little ones um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was lovely to chat to you all and thank you for giving us your time today um, it, during the pandemic obviously as a lockdown is now easing but thank you very much I know <laughs> I know we're, we're grateful to have something to do <laughs> right <laughs> it's nice to see people humans oh my god people <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you so much you've been listening to the funny women survival guide and I've been your host Alexis Strom Thanks so much to Helen and Rosie for joining me in the studio. And of course, thanks to Kate Stone from Funny Women for repping the Funny Women crew. Helen can be found on Twitter at Helen Lewis. And Rosie can be found on Twitter at Rosie Wilby. And finally, let's get to some recommendations. So I would suggest you check out the rather splendidly named new podcast, Women Talking Bollocks. Um, I love saying that bollocks, don't you? With Jen Brister, Maureen Younger and Alison Smith. And um, also check out former Funny Women Survival Guide guest Stevie Martin's The Book Club on Twitch. And you can find Stevie on Twitter at the number five, T-E-V-I-E, capital M. In terms of Funny Women events, the Comedy Crash Course is back on the 17th of August. And there's a really cool one coming up for 11 to 16 year olds. And that's on the week of the 24th of August. And drumroll please, my event, The Time I Almost, a comedy storytelling extravaganza with special guests Shazia Mirza and Tired and Tested's Sophie McCartney and more, is going to be on the 2nd of September. And all profits from that will be going to women's domestic abuse charities. And of course, the night we're all waiting for, the 24th of September, put it in your diaries, it's the Funny Women Awards final. To find out details about all of these events, just go to funnywomen.com. And finally, if you want to find out more about me, go to thetimealmost.com and see how many times I mention the word comedy. Please subscribe, download, rate, review and share this podcast. Thank you. Stay funny and stay safe.